0: The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. Well, today we want to move into the second section of Christ's High Priestly Prayer in John chapter 17, you remember there are three sections. In verses one through five, Christ prays for himself. In verses six through 19, he prays for his apostles. And in verses 20 through 26, he prays for all believers. In this section, we find that Christ is praying for his apostles, but there are some many things that apply not only apply to all believers as well as to the apostles themselves. But nevertheless, here the focus is primarily upon the apostles. And we begin by looking in verse 6 at Christ's description of a Christian. Again, with the focus primarily upon the apostles, but it applies beyond. Christ's description of a Christian. And that brings us to ask the question before examining the answer that Christ gives, ask the question, what is a Christian? A name that was not used, actually, until we find it in Acts chapter 8, where the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So at the time Christ praised this prayer, nobody was called a Christian, but that has come to be the most commonly used name for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, those who identify themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, those who identify themselves with the Christian religion as opposed to other world religions such as Islam and so forth. In fact, just going through what I, what I said, points in the direction that I'm getting at, namely that there are a lot of different ideas about what a Christian is. And when people say, I am a Christian, some people have one thing in mind and some people have other things in mind which makes it all the more important that we take time to look at the word Christian, or not the word Christian, but the concept of Christian as it is defined by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so that's where we are going on today's broadcast, which is aired on most stations on Sunday, this Sunday, January twenty-eighth. You possibly may be listening to a station that airs at another time. But here's The verse that we are looking at, John 17, 6, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. All right, what does Jesus say? Jesus is going to tell about those who are his apostles. And what does he say? Those who, what is a Christian? I, I'm, I keep broadening the the concept because I, I am aware that he is praying here primarily for his apostles, and he is describing in verse 6 primarily his apostles, but clearly the definition or description at least goes beyond that. So what are we talking about? What is the definition of a Christian, or what is maybe a better word would be a God-given description of a Christian? And we can start by saying, a Christian is one who first belonged to the Father. Isn't that what verse 6 says? I have manifested your name, Father. He's praying to his heavenly Father. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, but you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So they were yours. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's clear that everyone belongs to God in the sense that they, we have all been given life by God. We could say that God has created every human being. He has given life to every human being. Actually, to be more technical, God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the direct creation of God. And then Of course, since then, children were born from them. But where does that life come from? When a child is conceived in the womb, where does that soul come from? Where does that life come from? And the answer is that it comes from God. Every single child that is born, in fact, every single child that is conceived, is a miracle of God. God gives each one of us life if god does not give it we would not have it if god does not does not bestow it it would not be would not be in existence all of us belong to god by right of creation but and here's what this verse is teaching some belong to god in another sense we might even say a higher sense and that is some belong to god by sovereign selection or the doctrine that we call election, which singles out certain individuals to have a different relationship with God than others. It is a special group, and it is clearly, from the words of Christ here, something that takes place prior to man's involvement. It's something that predates and precedes man's involvement. Let me read this again in verse 6. Jesus said to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. That, of course, is something that involves their involvement. This is not predating and preceding man's involvement. Man is very much involved in this. Christ speaks the word. They listen to it. They hear it. They receive it into their minds and into their hearts. But then he goes on to say, they were yours. You have given them to me, and they have kept your word. So here are some that belonged to the Father, but the Father gave them to the Son. And this is, I say, a reference to the Bible doctrine of election, which is taught all throughout the Bible. I, I, I could say it is scattered all throughout the Bible, but by the word "scattered," I don't mean that it is scattered. Um, Lightly throughout the Bible, it is scattered rather heavily throughout the Bible when you begin to see it, when you have eyes to see it. It, The the problem is that many people skip over it, miss it, don't see it for whatever reason, don't see it. In some cases, don't want to see it. In other cases, really just don't see it. But it's there in so many different passages and so many different statements they're not all alike. Not, all, not every one of them say, God chose his people before the foundation of the world, although you can find that kind of language in the Bible. But here we find it described in a little bit different way. Of these men, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And I have given them your word, and they have kept your word, to to finish the thought of the verse. So there's a sequence here. Here are men that belonged to the Father, the Father gave them to the Son, the Son gave to them His word, and they received it, they believed it, they have kept His word. And so this points to the doctrine of election. Some dismiss the doctrine of election by re what should I say? Redefining it in ways that don't quite quite fit into the biblical description of it, as for example, some that will say, well, God didn't choose anybody until they first chose him. The first choice is man's and then the second choice is God's. Well, if that's the case, I'm just going to throw out something here. If that's the case, then why is it called the doctrine, and and why would the Bible describe it, as a doctrine of divine election, that, that this is something that God did? If, in fact, it's only something that God followed rather than God initiated. It's something that God responded to rather than something that God initiated or to put it another way, why would we call this, why would the Bible even call this the doctrine of election? Election means choosing. Why would the Bible speak in terms of God choosing if the real truth is that man chose first and God simply ratified man's choice? Wouldn't that better be called more accurately called, if in fact that's what the Bible teaches, which it's not, but if in fact that's what the Bible teaches, wouldn't that better be called the doctrine of divine ratification? God ratifies man's choice, man makes the first choice, and of course, many will say this, of course, takes place before any man or woman is actually born, but God who has knowledge of all things past, present, and future, can look down through the corridors of time and know who will and who will not receive him, who will, and to put it this way, who will and who will not choose him, and those whom he knows will choose him, given the opportunity, he says, those are my elect people. They chose me, so I choose them. Is that what the Bible teaches? I say, if it is, then it ought to be called the doctrine of ratification. Man, well, you say you turn it the other way around, then it's the doctrine of man's ratification. Yes, in fact, it is. The Bible doesn't emphasize man's choice, but it does speak in language that indicates man makes a choice, but man's choice is predicated upon God's choice. Take the well-known verse that's found, I think, in 1 John chapter 4 that says, we love Him, God, because He first loved us. So which comes first, God's love of us or our love of Him? It's true that those whom God loves with a saving love, with with an everlasting love, with with an electing love. It's true that those whom God loves in this way will in turn and in time come to respond to that love. They they will, we will, love him in return. But to get the right order, the Bible makes it clear, we love him because he first loved us. And the same thing is true in regard to the choices that are made. In fact, we could all, almost... Consider love to be a choice. God chooses to love the unlovely. He has no no responsibility to, no particular reason to that we can see. It's certainly not an emotional response that he just becomes overcome with the loveliness of these human beings that are just so wonderful. That's the way it's presented by some, but that certainly is not the case. If you read the Bible, in in terms of biblical language, we are wicked, we are rebellious, we are sinful, we are distasteful to God, we are enemies of God. God has every reason to cast us out, but instead he chooses to love the unlovely, and he made a choice to do that, and we respond to that by loving him. But our love for him is a response to his love for us, and our love for him is a response to something that he creates within us that gives us a different disposition, because before he worked in our lives, we didn't love him, and we need to understand that and be honest about it. Not everybody even understands that they don't love God until they are born again, but some understand that and are honest enough to say so. Martin Luther, I don't know when he came to this realization, I don't remember, I I probably did at one time, but I don't remember when he came to this realization, but in describing his own journey, when he came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, based upon faith in Christ alone, not in the good works that he did, he'd spent many, many years trying to make himself savable, to make himself acceptable, to make himself prepared for and qualified for salvation, to make himself someone that God would accept, that God would want to save. In other words, to to through some merit of his own, to commend himself to God. And he worked so hard at it, he really actually ruined his health in, in trying so hard to make himself... Acceptable to God and kept recognizing that he was unable to do so. It was a futile effort. He failed and failed and failed and failed and failed. And at some point, he describes his relationship to God this way, speaking about the first commandment to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. Martin Luther said, Love God, I hate God. Now he was trying to. Win the favor of God. He wanted to be received by God. He wanted to have a sense of God's love and pardon and acceptance. He wanted all of those things. He was trying very hard to achieve them. But all the while, he was exceedingly frustrated and felt like he didn't love God. He couldn't love God. He hated God because here was a holy God who required a perfect holiness which he couldn't achieve. And so, He resented that. He hated God for this high and holy requirement that he knew was necessary to come into the presence of God until, until what? Until he came to understand that God does not require a righteousness which we produce because, as Martin Luther had come to understand, it's impossible for us to produce a righteousness that is acceptable to God. We can't Produce a perfect righteousness, but God does not require that of us. Or maybe I should put it this way: uh, God does not does not leave us to that potential, that possibility, and let every one of us fail, because we we are no, nobody can succeed. He instead chose to love us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, in a choice of his own, God decided to, I don't know, it's impossible for us to pinpoint the the moment of, of God's decision. It very likely is an eternal decision we certainly know it was before the before the creation of the world but we don't know how much before but it's it's hard for us impossible for us really to think in terms outside of time even though we know that god is timeless we just tend to think in terms of past present and future and eternity past and eternity future and so forth but the the point of the the point is that that god made a decision to love the unlovely. God made a decision to show mercy. God made a decision to display sacrificial love, to display undeserved love, to display a volitional love where he chose to love those who were unlovely, he chose to love those who had nothing to commend themselves to him. He chose to love those who did not love him. You see, this is such a God-like love. It is a god love. And we see that in Scripture, and we realize this is the way we ought to love, but it's really difficult for us. It's hard for us to love people who dislike us, who don't love us, who make things hard for us who treat us unjustly, who hurt us in various ways. Oh, it's difficult for us to love them. And if love were primarily an emotion, an emotional response to the loveliness of the person that we love, then we would never love our enemies. But we're commanded to. So what does that mean? Well, that means, number one, that we are commanded to do what is impossible to the natural man, we really do need to be born again to be able to do this, to have a, an ability, even an, an understanding of, of the responsibility to do this, and a desire for it. So we are dependent upon God for that, but it tells us, secondly, that love is, first of all, a decision, not an emotion. We can choose to love if we understand that it is a choice, first of all, and secondly if we understand that it involves primarily action, again, not feeling, because Christ describes for us. He he tells us what is the nature of this love that we have for our enemies, and he doesn't couch it in terms of having warm, wonderful feelings toward them though I think if we reach the full state of sanctification, that will probably be the case. But until then, when we're struggling with these mixed emotions, on the one hand, there is a concern for them, there is a pity for them in their lost condition, in all their orneriness, and we recognize that their orneriness is an indication of their sinfulness and their need of salvation. and. And we realize that it's taking them to an eternal hell, and that does cause us to pity them. And something arouses within us that we could probably call love them. We, we would love them. We, we don't want to see them go into eternal condemnation. But we don't really have these love, warm, w- lovely thoughts about them. Those are reserved for people who make us feel good, who make us feel warm, who love us and we love them in return. It, that, that's the way it usually works in the natural world. I love her because what? Well, could be a number of things that would cause us to say that. We might say because she's beautiful. Well, God didn't love us because we were beautiful. He saw us in our sins, our our. our Unrighteousness, which is in his sight, is filthy rags. Nothing beautiful about that. Well, I love her because she's she's uh, kind and warm and friendly and loving toward me. That's that's usually part of the package too. And and uh, she makes me feel good about myself. And she she encourages me and lots of things that go into. Our loving someone else, it becomes a reciprocal relationship. It keeps going back and forth and back and forth if it's going to endure. I do something that that she appreciates. and so that furthers her love for me and, and she does something that I appreciate and so that furthers my love for her. So it's all based on on the loved object being lovable. And doing something that we find beneficial to ourselves, it it encourages and, and helps and motivates us in some positive way. And so that's what human love is based on. And when that's absent or when that changes, then the love goes out the w- window. I used to love him, but I don't love him anymore. He doesn't make me feel the same way that he used to. I've had too many arguments i've had too many disappointments I, I i i don't love him anymore so the solution of course in our world today is get rid of him and hope to find somebody else or maybe you've already found somebody else that you are that you you need to get um, divorced from this one, so that you can move on to the next one and hope it, hope it works better. And that's usually what it is. Let's let's try again. I was unfortunate the first time, but maybe I can make a better choice the second time. But the truth is, and and there are some people who had a tragic first marriage and then they end up having a second um, strong and and encouraging marriage. It does happen, of course. But statistics show us that the divorce rate among people who are divorced and remarried is actually higher than the divorce rate among people who've never been divorced. In other words, people who don't succeed in their first marriage generally have a higher percentage potential, higher percentage likelihood that they will not succeed in a second marriage. Because contrary to our thinking, it's not really What that other person is, if they were just different in this way or that way, then I could have a good marriage. But we don't realize it's our own sinfulness, our own orderiness that we bring into the marriage that creates the problems. Marriage is always two fallen human beings, two sinful human beings who agree that they are going to come together in the covenant of marriage a partnership that's based upon commitment. And if we take the attitude that, well, he doesn't do anything for me like he used to, then it's time for me to bail out and find somebody else. Of course, that says then we disregard, we, we trash our marriage vows when we committed to loving and marrying this person being committed to this person till death do us part. But that goes out the window. We we tend to, in our day, say those words, well, I couldn't say we don't mean them when we say them, but we don't think that they are totally binding. What we tend to think about them, because of the, the culture in which we live, is that until death do us part, or something else that's serious, do with part, and of course that's that does happen a lot too, and so if every marriage is something of a, what should I say, a gamble, and we hope it works out, but if it doesn't, then let's get divorced and find somebody else and and, and hope the next one works out better. Well, that was a long explanation to explain the difference between God's love and man's love. God doesn't love us because of what we do for him. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. God doesn't love us because of our loveliness. We're we're not lovely. We're ornery. We're sinful. We're rebellious. We're a stench in his nostrils, frankly. But what did he do? He chose to love the unlovely in order to to demonstrate who he is, his character. And when we choose to love others who don't in any human normal way deserve our love, then we display a godlike love. We love them by choice because it's the right thing to do. We love them by choice because God commands us to. We love them by choice because, as Christians, we want to demonstrate Christ to others, and this is the way Christ loved us, and this is the way Christ will love them. And they need to see a demonstration of that in his people. But the whole point is that love begins with God. We respond to that because of what he does within us. And likewise, in choosing The choice begins with God, we respond to that choice because of what he does within us. He's not waiting to see what we will choose, or he's not looking into the future knowing what we will choose and then ratifying our choice, he makes the choice, and then because of that choice, he makes the difference and changes us so that then we choose him, something we would never do in our old nature as a natural man but something which we now do, having been made a spiritual man because of his choice. Until next week, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.